And some of us desperately need reservations somewhere to take mother out to eat. Food. Jesus is concerned about food. It's amazing, isn't it? He says it's okay to pray for food. Pray for daily bread. Does that mean it's okay to pray for reservations if you didn't make them yet? I don't know. But what's his point? Pray for everything. Talk to your father for everything. As simple as food. Give us our daily bread. And also, we need daily forgiveness. Give us forgiveness. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins. Forgive us. We offend him every day. We need to pray every day. And if we're going to ask for that kind of grace from him to us, you better be able to give it across the table. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, just as we forgive him or her sitting across the table from me or the kids. Forgive me for coworkers. Help me forgive. Help me forgive. You forgive me. Help me forgive others. And then finally, we get to this last sentence where we arrive today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think the reason why we couldn't quite get here is this, this sentence is very confusing for a lot of people. It has caused a lot of consternation throughout the years because it sounds like God leads us into temptation. Please don't lead me into temptation. Into temptation? What in the world does that mean? Because I think when we hear the word temptation, we think temptation to sin. And so does God actually lead us into situations where we might sin? And if he's leading, should we pray against his leading? What is going on here? So we need to think about this together. Because here's Jesus saying, okay, you're, you're in trials and temptations. Don't, don't lead us into them. But yet we find James, his half-brother, says something like this. Count it all joy when you meet trials and temptations. It's the same word of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, there's that word, produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Jesus tells us not to pray for this temptations and trials and James says, rejoice in them because your faith is being perfected and strengthened. <laughs> Some people think, well, the Bible's really confusing. Sometimes it is. So we need to figure this out. So let's take a look. Um, there's two halves to this. Lead us not into temptation and then deliver us from evil. So we'll think about them together. First half, lead us not into temptation. The confusion comes from the word that is translated here as temptation. Pirasmos is the Greek word, and it simply means to learn the true nature or character of, or of something or someone by submitting such to thorough and extensive testing, to test, to examine, to put to the test. That's the meaning of the word. In itself, it does not mean anything negative or positive. It's very neutral. It depends upon the setting or the context in which the word is used as the outcome. And tests or trials can have different outcomes. You can test something and discover it's great. It works well. It is full of integrity. Or you can test something and discover there is a fatal flaw here. The outcome determines the context of how it's used. And so this word, when it's used in the Old Testament, always refers to tests administered with a view of dis discovering 
a wholehearted commitment to God or not. So when the test goes well, for example, God tested Abraham, that same word. Abraham passed the test. It went well, but others, Israel has been tested in several occasions. They didn't fail. I mean, they didn't, make, they didn't pass the test. They failed. So the outcome leads to sin. So this is why the word can sometimes be very confusing. And so we need to know what is being used here. Because testing can have various outcomes, various results, and it can also lead with, have different purposes. So the word appears 21 times in the New Testament. 11 times it carries the notion of temptation to evil, while 10 times it carries the notion of testing or examination. So what does Jesus mean, lead us not into temptation? Well, we begin, this is, when you come to difficult texts, look elsewhere in the Bible in order to help inform what we understand a word to be. So Jesus elsewhere tells us, or James does, that God does not tempt anyone to sin. So the testing, this word, it can be translated as test, trial, or temptation, depending upon the context. And so we know God does not tempt anyone to sin or entice someone to sin. And so that's not what Jesus means here. Where do we get this? James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not drawn to evil. It has no appeal to him, no allurement to him. He is completely unaffected in an emotional way of being drawn to anything sinful. So he's not going to do that in the lives of his children. He does not tempt anyone to sin. So that's not what this word means here. So we shouldn't understand it to be that Jesus is saying, pray that God would not lead you into evil. He doesn't do that. He cannot do that. That would be like us praying, God, please don't sin today. It's impossible. So we don't need to pray that. God doesn't do that. But God does test his children. Right? Multiple times in places in the, in the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, we know God does test us. And so, for example, I, I quoted earlier, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Genesis 22, 1, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am. Abraham says, here I am. And what does he do? He calls him then to take his son Isaac on a little journey where he offers, he, he intends to offer him as a sacrifice. God's testing him, and Abraham passed the test. Psalm 11, 5, the Lord tests the righteous. It's the same word. The aim is not to make them fall or entice them into evil, but he does test us to reveal sometimes to, to us what is happening inwardly. Proverbs 17.3 says this, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. The Lord tests the hearts. And Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Now, God is not seeking information. He's seeking revelation so that we can understand what's in our own heart. Because sometimes we endure tests and we think we're okay until we're tested, and then we realize, I didn't know that quite as well as I thought I did. You've had that experience? Many of you just graduated yesterday. 
All right, there's a handful of you, five or six or seven of you in this room who graduated yesterday. And you, I, I passed the test. I made it. I got the degree. But along the way, there were some tests that you went through when you got a grade that reflected, <laughs> I should have studied a little harder, right? Well, God is not looking for information. He, he tests us to reveal to us the state of our own soul. Because we don't know where we are until we get tested. And so he exposes to us what's inwardly within us. God's purpose in the test is always our good. Now, there's another, there can be others who have a purpose for a test that is not our good. But when we come to God the Father, always his testing or the trials that we go through are intended to edify our faith. Or reveal the cracks so we can fix it. So, 1 Peter 1 says this, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And there's the word, trials. Here it's translated as trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though even it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of the test? It, it is to result in praise and honor and glory at the last day. Though you got to go through some tests right now. In order for that to happen, in order for that outcome to be achieved, you need to go through some testing now. And they're grievous. Sometimes they're hard is what Peter is saying. But you need to go through that in order for praise and honor to come about at the end of time. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Here, that same word now. It's trial here. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What's the purpose here? To grant a crown of life. So God's intention is to give a reward here. But you've got to go through the test. You've got to go through the, the trial or the struggle. And so here there's an aim. So Jesus is not telling us to pray, lead us not into temptation, meaning, God, don't take us into the test that you intend for our good or for the fortification of our faith or for so that we can get a reward at the last day. He's not telling us that. So that's not what he means. He does not mean God... Don't lead us into sin, nor is he saying, God, don't lead us into tests that will perfect our faith. So what is he saying? He's not teaching us that God will, that we can avoid those tests. Neither does the Bible tell us that we can avoid all temptation to sin, right? We can't even avoid that in this broken world. Here's something amazing that Jesus says later on in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Same word here, but clearly this indicates temptation to sin, specified, very clear. We can't escape temptations to sin. You're not going to get rid of them. You won't, you won't get away from temptations that could potentially lead you into sin. They'll never come from God, but... There's lots of other places from which those temptations could come. For example, you've probably got some desires in your own heart and mind that go in the wrong direction and have sinful roots. We have sinful desires from within and we have demonic enemies from without who take those desires and would want to twist them and use them against us. 
So, so two examples of this. The inward, tempta- the inward source of temptation, our own desires, Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. Even as Christians, we are not freed completely from the presence of sin in our lives. We still have desires that go in the wrong direction. We have the spirit of God within us, yes. But even there, there's tension between our own desires, which would be twisted against what is good and right, and the desires of the Holy Spirit who lead us in the opposite direction. So we have this internal problem. Sources of temptation come from our own desires. And verse four, uh, James 1.14 says this very clearly, but each is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So here we see both aspects, the internal problem, which is our own desires, our own sinful desires, but also there is an external component, the luring and enticing. That points to the demonic enemies, the devil, all of his fallen angels, Satan, who lures and entices, because that's not coming from God. God does not lure and entice us to sin. Our own desires incline that way, and then the enemy comes in and grabs a hold and pulls and entices and lures with lies and deceptions, right? I know you've studied for so long on this exam, but just, it's okay. Just have your phone right there. You'll be able to, right? Temptations to cheat, to lie, always the shortcuts that we think we could get to the end and deserve. All of those lies and deception come from the enemy. Not from God, but from the enemy. So we can't escape temptations to sin in this broken world. And so what is Jesus saying? He's not teaching us that God leads us into temptation to sin. He's not teaching us that that we are going to escape all temptations to sin. And, And so we're not to pray against the perfecting trials that we go through. So what is he saying? There's one other place in scripture where Jesus says almost the exact same thing. It's in Matthew 26. It happens in the garden of Gethsemane on the evening before Jesus' crucifixion. He says almost exact same words that we find here in this prayer. And you, you remember the scene. <clears throat> Jesus has just had the last supper. He's with his disciples. And he, they, are, they leave the upper room and they're headed towards the garden of Gethsemane to go and pray. Jesus is about to get arrested. And, and as they leave the upper room, which I, I have in my mind the the site which they say is the upper room, as they're leaving and going out, Jesus says to them, to his disciples, tonight, every one of you will fall away because of me. Tonight, every one of you will fall away because of me. And what does Peter say? Do you remember? Not me. Not me. If all of them fall away, I won't. And then Jesus says to Peter, Uh, you're going to deny me three times before daybreak. And Peter says, I would die before I would deny you. And then everybody, all the other disciples follow his lead and say, yep, we're right there with him. We're, we're, We're absolutely with him. They all say the same thing. And then when they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to the the larger group of disciples, you guys, you stay here. I'm going to go and pray. He takes Peter, James, and John with him a little further into the garden. And he says to them, my soul is so extremely sorrowful. I feel like I'm about to die. 
will you guys pray with me for just a little bit? You, you sit here, and I'm going to go on over here a little bit and pray. And he falls on his face, and he prays. And you know what he prays, right? Father, keep me from this hour, if at all possible. Can this cup pass from me? But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is agonizing in prayer over here because of the seriousness of the moment. And, and he's asked his three closest friends to stand with him in, in prayer, to watch with him and pray with him. And as he's agonizing over here on the corner, he gets up. Oh, I'm sorry. He gets up and he comes back to his three closest friends who he have asked to pray with him. And what are they doing? Do you remember what they're doing? Taking a nap. They have fallen asleep. Have, have you ever been in a situation of utter and, and sheer grief when you have been so stressed out that blood vessels have been popping out in your head and, and you're, you've asked your best friends to pray with you in a moment? and they go to sleep, that's what's happened. And Jesus wakes Peter up, and he says this, and here's the words which connect us to why we're here. Matthew 26, 40, 41. Could you not watch with me for one hour? Jesus prayed for an hour. He agonized for an hour. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There it is. This is exactly what he says in the Lord's Prayer. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what does Jesus mean? I think this helps us shape an understanding of what Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, lead us not into temptation. What is, what is he saying to Peter? Could you not watch? And literally that means stay awake. Could you not stay awake with me for one hour? And he says, watch and pray. Two different things. Be on the lookout. Be alert. Look and pray. Talk to God the Father. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Right, Peter, was he willing? Absolutely. He's, I, will, I will die before I will deny you. I am not, Lord Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. It won't happen. I am with you. And even if we have to die, I'm there for you. Very willing spirit, right? But Peter totally misjudged the seriousness of the moment. And he underestimated, or he overestimated his own ability to be ready for the task. And we know this because he fell asleep. You don't fall asleep unless you think everything's fine. When your life is not fine, you stay up, don't you? When you're wondering how the job is going to get done, or how the project is going to happen, or where the money's going to come from to pay for the mortgage, or whatever, or how am I going to get to graduation, whatever it is, when you, when you are worried, you're awake. Peter was not awake. He was not worried. It's all good. I'm going to take a nap. I he did not understand the gravity of the situation he was in, and so he fell asleep. So Jesus is sorrowful unto death in that moment, and Peter is snoring unto sleep. So what should we take from this as we think about this? Lead us not into temptation. I think probably the better word is a trial. Lead us not into a trial that we are going to fail. Because Peter failed. He did not live up to the task and he 
was warned, there's a serious moment coming to you, Peter, and you need to be ready, and prayer will supply you with the strength that you need. I think this invitation to pray like this is to pray, Lord, don't let me get into a test that I am going to fail. Keep me, lead me not into a test that will be too strong for me. And I'm praying because I know I need strength from you. Because God the Father is the one who can supply the strength. So don't let sin get the upper hand in my life. I think that's what Jesus is meaning by praying, lead me not into a trial, a test that I'm going to fail. And we see this. David learned this lesson. And it shaped how he prayed. I want to read two examples in the Old Testament from Psalm 19.13. David says this, Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Like presuming, Jesus, what are you worried about? It's going to be fine. Just take a nap. It's all good. Lead me not to presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Don't, don't let any sin get the upper hand. Don't let anything have dominion over me. Don't lead me into a place where I'm going to fall under the weight of sin. And Psalm 119, 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Keep me steady, Father, so that I can bear up under the struggle or under the test. So temptation is probably not the best word. So I invite you to think differently when you pray and using this as a model for prayer, think like this. Pray something like this. Our Father, lead me not into an overpowering trial. Lead me not into a test that I will fail. Lead me not into a trial for which I am too weak to endure. Pray like that. I think that's what Jesus means when he's, don't lead me into a test that I will not go through rightly. And then the last part, deliver us from evil. Go back to the second half of 6.13. So lead us not into an overpowering test, I will say, but deliver us from evil. What's the point here? Again, to whom are we praying? Jesus has instructed us to pray to our Father. I think Jesus' point is only God will deliver you from evil. The, the, you don't have it within you. Peter's another good example. You don't have it within you to stand up against the struggles, the trials, the temptations that you will face and survive them well without looking to God for the strength to continue on. You won't keep your feet steady unless you're looking to God the Father. The communion needs to be there with the Father in order to have the strength that He supplies in order to keep us moving. Because only God the Father can decisively deliver us from the situations that we are going to walk through. How? Because he, he and his union with the Son knows exactly what we're enduring. Jesus walked this earth. He knows our struggles. He knows our weaknesses that we so easily give into. And so he can supply the strength that we need. And secondly, this reminds us, you don't deliver yourself. This is a humbling prayer. You deliver us. Deliver us from evil. You provide the strength because I don't have it within me. That, that you have to be humble in order to pray. You have to come needy to God in order to receive from God. So are you content to be needy? 
Are you content to look to him and to trust that he can supply you with what you can't see how it's going to come about? Because he can supply us. And then one other observation, the keep, uh, deliver us from evil. Some of your translations, depending on which you have, it might have the evil one. Um, there is a definite article in the Greek. So literally this says, deliver us from the evil. So some translators assume this means the evil one, meaning Satan. Um, it, but it, it is not that doesn't bear out in every instance that that refers to a personal being. The word here can be either neuter or masculine, so we're uncertain. But some translators have opted to say, keep us from the evil one. But my, the argument against that would be that's too limiting. Yes, we need to be kept from the evil one, but there's a whole lot of more evil in this world that from which we need to be kept. So let's not limit our prayer. And Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great statement for which I agree on this point. And he says this. Some would say, uh, keep us from the evil one. But I think that limits the meeting, meaning for evil here includes not only Satan, but evil in every shape and form. It, is, it certainly includes Satan, and we need to be delivered from him and his wiles. But there is evil also in our hearts. So we need to be delivered from that and from the evil in the world as well. We need to be delivered from it all. And it is a great request and a comprehensive petition. Uh, he's not wrong. We have evil from within, from which we need to be delivered. We have evil from without, from which we need to be delivered. And so keep us from the evil, wherever we find it, and whatever form it might come. Father, deliver us from evil. Look to God the Father for strength. Do not look to yourself. Do not overestimate your own ability and do not underestimate his ability to provide. And then in conclusion, there's one final uh, point to make. If, if you have the ESV, you'll notice a little footnote. Many translations will carry a footnote. If you have the NASB, you'll see a bracketed for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You'll notice that's not in the ESV. Um, in some versions, we'll give you a, an explanation that this is not in the oldest manuscripts. This particular sentence um, is not found in the oldest copies of Matthew. And so it was added at some point after Matthew wrote this gospel. And because of that reason, some have left it out. Um, but the, um, when we say the Lord's Prayer, we include it. And several reasons for that. Um, a, it's not wrong. B, it's theologically correct. C, it gives glory to God. D, we're not limited to only praying prayers that we see in Scripture. Uh, e, it has been enthusiastically embraced by the church for a couple thousand years. And E, uh, F, sorry, I think it's very edifying because Jews always concluded their prayers with a benediction. A blessing, a doxology, if you will, a praise to God the Father. So we retain it in our reciting of the Lord's Prayer. And I, I just want to wrap this up and invite you. Are you willing to engage in a more energetic prayer life in order to reap a greater benefit from the Lord? Because temptation will come to you at every point. It won't end. Satan and all of his fallen angels are relentless 
in trying to keep you from the very source of strength that will supply what you need in moments of, of temptation. And so I think, are you willing to commit yourself? I want to invite you to a renewed spiritual vigor for engaging the Lord in prayer, in seeking Him in the way that this particular prayer has, has invited us to pray. Are you willing to give some spiritual effort? Right? Everything that is worth having requires a little effort. And, and marriage is a great example. You want to have a flourishing marriage? It takes work, right? Anybody in the room who's still awake? With me on this one. It takes hard work. But is it worth it? Yes, yes, yes. So let nothing keep you from pursuing God. That relationship of marriage is intended to be a mirror for our relationship with the Lord. And so will you seek him? Will you pour out your soul and give yourself to him? So pray, Father, keep me from anything that will lead me into failure. Keep me from overpowering trials and tests and deliver me from all of the evil in this world, whether it is external or internal, deliver me. And prayer has to be humble. Are you willing to humble yourself before the Lord in order to ask and receive from him what you need? So I leave you with one verse I read this morning in my daily reading. James 4, 8, uh, 6 to 8 says this, God opposes the proud. If you're a proud person, he opposes you. If you're proud and you think, I got it, be careful. God opposes the proud, but humble, needy, submit to yourselves therefore to God. Right? God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, so submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Are you willing to do that? This week, even today, are you willing to say, I, Father, forgive me for my pride. For, we don't pray because we are proud people. That keeps us from prayer. Self-sufficiency will keep you from prayer. But if you know you're needy, you will pray. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Anybody? Use a little extra measure of grace. Here is an invitation. Submit yourselves to the Lord. Resist the devil. When you humble yourself before God, he will give you the grace to resist the, the temptations to sin and so that you can bear up under the temptation. Submit to him. Resi I mean, resist the devil. Submit to God and the, and the enemy will flee from you. He will, he will flee. Just bear through a little longer is my invitation to you this week. Press through with grace, with holy resistance, humble dependence upon God's grace, and then draw near to him in prayer. Our Father is intended to be an intimate prayer. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. So that's it. Father, will you lead us not into to trials that are overpowering to us, and will you deliver us from evil? Let's pray together. Lord, please help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us a, a hunger for you. And Lord, let us not fail the test. Forgive us for 
self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Spiritually, we are weak and pitiful and poor. And yet you invite us to come to you. You invite us to draw near to you. And Father, I ask you, please be gracious to us. All of us in this room, we are bowing before you. We are confessing your sovereignty, your lordship, your holy name. You are the God of this universe. You are the creator of our lives. We are completely dependent upon you. And Lord, I pray you'd pour out your spirit upon each one of us in this room. That this week, our prayer lives would be different. Let us not be content to daily ignore you. Where pride is present in our lives, would you please gently reveal it so that we can repent of it and we can humble ourselves before you. Would you be gracious to us? I ask you, Lord Jesus, you you know our frame. You know how weak we are. So be gracious to us. Give us hearts that are willing to submit to you. Even when it is hard, may we humbly submit to you and trust that you are able to provide us with the grace we need to do what you're calling us to do, to live holy lives and to completely trust you. Keep us from proud doubting that we think you cannot provide for us and so we jump into sin. God, keep us from that kind of presumptive sins that would have dominion over us. Deliver us from all forms of evil. Plant a desire and a love for your name and your holiness so deeply within us that we seek you with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul. We confess, Lord Jesus, you are able to give us all that we need in order to live faithfully the lives that you have called us to live. Without you, we can do nothing. But with you, all things are possible. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.